very much for taking part in I'm Socially Distancing With. So I'm Pip from the Kite Trust. My pronouns are they, them, or Zizi. And so first, would you like to just share your names and pronouns? Yeah, um, my name is Cien, and my pronoun they, them, works for me. So kind of my first uh, question, it's something else we do at our groups, is we ask a like fun question when we do our <laughs> introductions. So my fun question for today is, if you were a biscuit, what kind of biscuit would you be? Now, you see, you sent this one through already, and I found it really hard on like a deeply personal level. I, but I was all like, oh, like what kind of biscuit am I compared to what kind of biscuit I enjoy versus what kind of biscuit I want other people to see me as? And then I got a little bit like completely caught up in myself um, when I realized this is just a question about biscuits. So maybe I should just chill a little bit. Yeah, um, maybe I should so, send the question in advance. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite kind of biscuit is an oatmeal raisin cookie. So um, maybe that is the biscuit that I would be. I like how they're full of cinnamon and brown sugar and they're incredibly cozy. I don't know if I'm a very cozy person, but I do love oatmeal raisin cookies, so I'm going to go with that. Nice, nice. Cool. So um, for anyone uh, listening, watching, who might not know your work, how would you describe what you do? Oh, I, I guess I, I would talk about uh, the three, three strands of what I do, um, and they, they do kind of interlock. Um, so I'm an author. My first book, Translate Me, was published in the UK... Uh, and Australia and South Africa and uh, a lot of a lot of other sort of places like that in 2017. Then in the US and Canada in 2018, and I've been pretty much on kind of book tours since then. I do a lot of radio work and public speaking. I get to go to exciting places like the Sydney Opera House or work on uh, BBC talking about gender and about being trans. Um, not just my experiences, but what that is like in terms of society, social issues, historical issues, um, you know, campaigning, stuff like that. I've been working as an LGBTQI activist since I was a teenager myself. And uh, so when I was a teenager, I started the first ever Gay Straight Alliance in the UK. Uh, that was the term back in the day, was Gay Straight Alliance. And uh, also co-founded the UK's first um, LGBTQ plus organization for young people uh, on a national scale. And sort of ever since then, I've been working, sort of campaigning as, as, a, as a queer activist, queer and trans activist, um, but I'm also a musician. So I've released three albums of my singer-songwriter stuff. I have a PhD in music, and I sing and compose classical music as well. Cool. A wide, wide variety of different talents. <laughs> well, I try my best. <laughs> How much um, would you say that various parts of that work uh some maybe quite obviously some more distantly links to parts of your identity um i it doesn't it doesn't i think this is always one of those questions where you know who you are and your life experiences are going to impact on everything you do sometimes in a really positive way sometimes in a really negative way so if i think of something even like classical music where you might think oh does classical music have anything to do with being trans well, kind of no, and then kind of yes, when I've experienced discrimination as a trans singer, that's definitely impacted. But also some really joyful things as well. So, you know, I love queer art and the chance to make music, whether that's classical music or my alternative music, which is inspired by like my queer and trans heroes. That feels like a really positive way in which who I am has impacted the art that I can create and appreciate. So. Yeah, it, it does and it doesn't, but 
Um, I think there's a really good way of thinking about it, which is that we often assume, let's say, oh, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example and my, my head has just gone, it's been a long working day. Um, if someone is sort of a white cis straight man, we don't usually ask how that impacts, like how does that identity impact on their work because it's seen as neutral. Um, and the people, you know, those of us who aren't seen as neutral, it's always this idea that, oh, does that kind of impact on the art we make in a bad way? And I think what I'd rather say is whoever we are, even if you're cis, white, and straight, that's going to impact on what kind of art you make. Um, and I think the thing to really do is embrace it and broaden your horizons as much as you can and then delve deep and see what it is that you can make that nobody else in the world could create. Hi. Uh, do you have any examples? I, I guess like your your book in particular, its title kind of says that, doesn't it? Of like mm. that's a piece of writing that very much only only you could make. Yeah, it's story. yeah. It's it's not a memoir, but it does have little bits about my life in it. And I really wanted to be able to, in the same way when we're having a conversation, if I want to talk about, I don't know, um, something to do with the law, like the Gender Recognition Act in the UK, I can talk about just the facts, but I can also illustrate it with examples from my life and that can make it easier to understand. So I wanted to do that. Um, but another example is I run a, a trans arts night at the Barbican in London. And that's a really, it feels really positive to me that I can take my love of my fellow trans creatives and turn that into a platform that, that celebrates them, brings in audiences, says, you know, this is a different way of looking at the world maybe than you've seen before. And it's great. Like, really, just come in and feast your eyes on how great these artists are. Cool. Do you, so, thinking more about, uh, like, how coming to understand your own identity, do you have any kind of key times or places that you feel helped you to understand? Kind of Ooh. I mean, definitely sort of a lot of teenage angst. And I, I did an awful lot of, you know, locking the door and being in my bedroom and being like, oh, my God, am I this? Am I that? What What is going on here? Oh, why don't I know who I am? Or why don't I know sort of what's going on? And it's really easy in retrospect to to go, oh, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. Um, but it was very difficult, particularly, you know, it came out the end of 1999, beginning of 2000, and there weren't very many words, you know, being trans wasn't something that you could find information out on very easily. You know, it, it, a lot of it was sort of searching for hidden things and, and trying to find people like me. So when I did find examples of people maybe who weren't exactly like me, but, but somewhere similar, like Kate Bornstein and Leslie Feinberg, that was magic. That really opened my eyes to the fact that I was okay and I would be okay and that who I was was valid. So I, when I wrote Trans Like Me, there's a wonderful saying, Toni Morrison said it, that you, know, you write the book that you need to exist in the world. And I think that was the book I needed to say, you know, you're not weird, you're not a freak, you're not all the terrible things that people at school call you. You're valid and you're just as much a wonderful, unique human being as anybody else. And you have a right to be proud. Nice. Was there other like authors or particular books that um, kind of inspired you in terms of writing? Um, oh, that's such a big like, question. <laughs> so inspired writing in general or um, sort of, 
I mean, I, I did the really stereotypical thing. I went really mad about Oscar Wilde, which I think is a stage a lot of queer young people go through. So I, I did a lot of posing and writing really bad poetry and trying to look like really decadent and brilliant and wear a lot of velvet. So I, I haven't completely grown out of that, maybe. So Oscar Wilde was a really big deal for me. Mm, mm. I remember Oscar Wilde was um, the importance of being earnest was on my GCSE English syllabus um, mm. and I found that really um, so I was home educated and had did like I GCSEs so had a different kind of syllabus to most people like my generation who were in school um, mm. and the fact so my like English syllabus was full of international authors who wrote in English um, mm. but also like the likes of Oscar Wilde and to have that kind of representation I found in the in like the GCSE curriculum quite mm. um, empowering um, which I a lot of my peers didn't have because of the selections of authors who kind of end up um, on those uh, syllabuses mm. I guess mm. My question from that was, is there any authors that you, like, would love to see have that kind of representation that, like, all young people in school are kind of exposed to and get to experience, other than Oscar Wilde? Yeah, I think, um, so a really big deal as a teenager was also discovering Audre Lorde. And I was so lucky to to live in London, so I was able to go up to Gaze the Word Word Bookstore. um, And also there was a very... um, venerable institution it was called the silver moon women's bookshop which was just coming to the end of its life uh when i was a teenager but i went once uh with with a good friend of mine and they had all of audrey lord's books and um so i bought zami uh, a new spelling of my name which is it's kind of an autobiographical novel and it's absolutely amazing and lord is just she is the most incredible feminist queer author. I know, you know, her work as a black feminist, I think is vital for any, particularly any white person to read, to make sure that we're really centering um, black feminism and making sure when we talk about LGBTQI plus spaces, um, that we're not replicating racism. Um, And she's just amazing. I can't tell you, like, go read, go read Zami now and then go read sister outsider her collection of essays and then read some more but start with zami and sister outsider cool cool that's a great recommendation um so my my next question um i guess kind of links to that is um if uh so we talk a lot about kind of uh self-care um Mm -hmm. and it's quite become quite a buzzword i think Mm -hmm. we also um kind of within the lgbtq plus community talk about community care and kind of community solidarity and taking care of each other is equally kind of important mm-hmm. um, do you have any uh, kind of thoughts ideas practices around both self-care and community care and how they might uh, interlink or things specific for each of those yeah I mean it's interesting you say that after we talk about Audrey Lord because she talks a lot about that but in um I, I think, you know, there's that, that thing where we can see online where this idea of self-care has become kind of fluffy idea, like, oh, I'm going to go and have a bath and eat some chocolate because it's self-care. Um, and I, I completely, like, go have a bath, eat some chocolate, that sounds great. Um, but I think both as communities and individuals, for me, self-care is more about doing 
the sometimes very hard work that makes my life worth living and will enhance my life and the lives of others in the long run, but it might not be that easy. So personally, for me, therapy is a hugely important part of my life. Um, I had a mental breakdown when I was 13, and I've been sort of in and out of mental health care since that time. And it took me quite a long time to find a good therapist. Um, I had some very bad ones. I also had some sort of okay ones, but it was only until I was 20 that I really found an amazing therapist, and she I'm still with her. And having, you know, I go now maybe once every two weeks to once a month, and obviously we're, we're in lockdown, so it's telephone calls, but finding that right therapist and then finding the right medication regime for me was life-changing, completely life-changing. And I wouldn't be able to have done a tenth of what I can do now if I hadn't found that. And I mean that in terms of not just professional things, but wonderful things like going out to a cafe. You know, I, I had a period where I was so agoraphobic I couldn't leave the house for nearly a year. And it's hard, you know, it, it's really hard to access and it can be a real, real battle to access proper mental health care. Um, and then it can be hard finding the right person and it can be hard just to, to come and sort of face that, um, that maybe we, we need to do it. There's so much shame embedded around that. But I think good mental health care would be my recommendation individually, but also in a, in a community. I think with the best will in the world, sometimes in the queer community, we can end up enabling each other particularly with things which are harmful. And I don't mean this, you know, we're not doing it deliberately. It's because we might have some bad coping strategies ourselves and, you know, where do we go and what do we do? Um, but I think then it's really important that we help support each other to get the care that we need rather than maybe going for the easy fix, which becomes more and more harmful in the long run. I think we need to make it easier to talk to each other about the struggles that we're going through, but also then easier to help each other find solutions rather than think that those problems will never be solved. And I think as older queer people, we have a real responsibility um, to not just say, oh, it gets better, you're on your own, but we can help you make it better. Here are the resources and here's how you access them and here's how to get past the stumbling blocks. And we're also here to help you, you know, if things go wrong, because, you know, things go wrong. I've, I've been ranting now for quite a long time. <laughs> But but that is something I feel really strongly about, that it's not enough that that we sort of say, oh, it's good to talk or, you know, it's good to let your feelings out. But we really help each other heal from some of the trauma that we've gone through and, and to recognize that having mental illness, any kind of mental illness is not shameful. It doesn't mean you're broken and it doesn't mean there's no hope. It just means you've got to work out the right way of, of building in new strategies. Mm. I think I, I think I definitely definitely agree with that and I think my my own experiences of of accessing therapy is that I think so much in in the UK in particular therapy is kind of portrayed as this like singular thing uh, mm. it took me a while to work out that there were so many different kinds of therapy um and also just the individual therapists um, absolutely can be really even if they're practicing the same kind of therapy there is they they do bring themselves to it and they're like well, um and if you know if you if you see someone and you think oh this person is a bit of an asshole they might be and that might be a sign find someone better 
because you know it doesn't mean that therapy is bad it just means unfortunately like every profession there are some people there who shouldn't be there and who aren't doing a good enough job but there are people out there who are absolutely amazing and mm. you know i always want to say to everybody like you deserve to feel at peace in your own mind and it is possible i never thought it would be possible for me um i never ever thought that i would actually like my own brain as opposed to being a constant war with it so you know it it is an amazing feeling mm. i wish yeah. i could give it a gift to everybody with oh but you know oh. um so my my next question i think maybe maybe i don't know links a little bit to that as well what we've been talking about is if you could talk to a younger version of yourself right now what mm-hmm. age would that younger version of yourself be and what advice would you give them oh dear i probably would hmm this is really hard um i think i think two ages can i pick two ages yep okay sure. um there was the, obviously i think when i was so in this very bad place when I was 13 and, you know, really didn't know how I was going to keep going. I would go back to that younger version and maybe just give them a hug and, and let them know like it really and truly would pass and to thank them for, for keeping on fighting. Um, and then I think maybe, you know, the other version of me I would go back to, you know what, maybe I remember when I was around sort of uh, 15, and starting looking into things like sort of surgical options for trans people. And a lot of the, the things that I'd seen were, were really bad hatchet jobs and, you know, some really bad surgical work and seemed very disrespectful of people's bodies and talked about in really disrespectful terms. And I found that hard because I was like, oh, I th- you know, I think I need this, but also, you know, is this going to be a really bad decision? And is it a choice between having what I need and being treated badly by a doctor? Or, And I think it would have been really cool to go back with examples of all kinds of trans people with all kinds of medical or non-medical interventions and gone back with like a beautiful coffee table book and said, look at all these wonderful people living their best lives. That can be you. Like, chill out. It's okay. <laughs> you know, all of this this horrible oh my god this or that or this or that instead i could just have looked at all these wonderful people and gone cool i i have options and they're great options yeah yeah i think there's there's so much narrative isn't there it's like a singular way of being or, or a binary way of being trans um mm-hmm. and the the diversity of the trans community is is that really beautiful thing about it is that mm-hmm. that the overriding, overriding message is that it's about kind of finding your own truth and comfort um, in yourself. Yep. And this might sound really shallow, but I'm going to go for the really shallow. Um, it's certainly like depictions of trans people that, that I had seen around that age in the tabloids were so cruel and so nasty and so intent on being like, don't be trans because being trans is a massive failure. And so very much the idea of trans masculine people, like you're only gonna be trans masculine if you failed at being a woman and you're too ugly to be, it was really toxic stuff. I don't know if you can remember any of this kind of, you know, it's, and I would have loved to have seen, again, trans people in all their glory being gorgeous and unapologetic and not gorgeous because they fit into a really narrative narrow cis normative mold but because they're doing their own thing and they're just fabulous 
and that would have been amazing mm, yeah I think yeah and I think it's it's still a problem in terms of that like the sources of information um, for for young trans people trying to work out what the right route is um, I think I I've been so like mm. overwhelmed in my own journey about the value of social media and particularly things like tumblers mm. and facebook groups where it is like yeah. particularly non-binary people creating like our own stories on the internet rather than mm. when you try and explore kind of surgery stuff you still end up on like surgeons websites that have really yeah. problematic ways of describing everything and yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. i think um so I, this is all quite recent for me, so I had surgery in January, um, mm. so I guess still kind of technically in, in kind of recovery period from that, mm. um, and have found it really weird in a way that I think so, like the hospital that I was in had got really used to uh, trans men having surgery there, okay, okay. but the idea of getting a pronoun right for someone who is having this surgery, but not using he him um, mm-hmm. was still a little bit kind of mind blowing to the staff there. Um, yeah. But I think there's still some way to go. Um, and yeah, understanding that. I don't know. Like, how are your your own experiences at that kind of? Um, I mean, that was quite a while ago. So when I had top surgery, uh, it was more than ten years ago now. So I couldn't at that point access NHS care. Um, or I didn't know anyone who'd been able to access NHS Queer who was genderqueer, agender, non-binary. Um, and I was very, very lucky that I had savings. So I went private and I went with the only doctor in the UK uh, who I knew who who would operate on me. And he was very good, if a bit strange, in that kind of jolly hockey sticks, I'm a private surgeon way. Um, the staff couldn't get their head around it at the hospital. Um, it was all like asking me why I was doing it and calling me she. Um, but the best part of the whole thing was that, uh, <laughs> the, so this sounds so sick. I'm sorry, I feel very bad for saying this, but it, it was one of the weirdest moments was the nurse on call at night as I was in recovery woke me up to tell me that Michael Jackson had died because she wanted someone to talk to about it. <laughs> so I was completely, I was full of morphine and really confused <laughs> with this nurse being like, oh, he's died. And I was like, oh, that's sad. She was like, yeah, let's talk about this sad thing. So there you are. That's my top surgery story. Is That's such a bizarre memory to, to have of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really, it was amazing. I just, I wish um, there was some, oh, sorry. I should have, that's a message coming in. How wonderful. Um, yeah. My only, my only regret is that I really wish I had been able to do it at 18 rather than having to wait a little bit longer for, for family and financial reasons. But, you know, life is what it is. And I'm just glad I had it done when I did. Mm, mm. I think I found it so... Like, I knew that it was what I wanted and that it would give me kind of positive effects in my life. Mm-hmm. But there's been so many... I want, like There's so much moments of like joy and euphoria that I've Absolutely. had over the last three months um, that I... like weren't even the ones that I anticipated um so doing 
exercise for the first time without any kind of like restrictions on my breathing and it's like mm-hmm. oh actually like this is this is what it feels like to run and like um the, the freeing sense that goes with that of uh i got so into weightlifting <laughs> and just be like i can oh this is great and i have to say i'm still really into weightlifting it feels really good so nice yeah any, heavy, like, thing, heavy thing down like competitively or just as a kind oh, of yeah. no no just okay. just me and, my, me and my dumbbells at home listening to loud music and lifting it up putting it down lifting it up putting it's nice and simple when life is really confusing the weightlifting is always simple and i like that very much mm, mm. i think i definitely find there's something about uh like exercise that can help in terms of like mental health and like yeah how you, you're focusing on like a repetitive movement or just mm-hmm. on kind of like breathing or like the the destination if you're outside mm. um and like kind of clearing clearing the head that yep. can come with that and music practice is really good for that as well but always mm. recommend what age did you start uh playing or practicing mm. uh, i started playing piano when i was six um and my parents aren't musical but i had heard music and completely loved it and then uh, i saw a kid at my school playing the piano i was like wait i could do that so that that was that was my route <laughs> and um, never really stopped wanting to do it. And then I'd always sung and sang in a really good choir at school and sang in a rock band all the way through my undergraduate um, and and did a music degree, so I was singing and playing then. And then uh, during my master's, I got really serious about singing and started sort of really hard professional training while I was also then working as a solo singer-songwriter. So I'd go to my lessons during the day and sing opera and then cart my electric piano around London at night and sing sad songs in bars with sticky floors. Nice. Are there any other kind of bars? <laughs> I don't so. Not the kind of bars that do music anyway. Yeah. So got to have the sticky floors. <laughs> if you could learn any new instrument or genre of singing or anything like that, what would it be? It is very, I've never ever been able to make a sound out of a wind instrument, like never. So I would like to know how to make a sound out of a wind instrument. That would be quite exciting. And then in terms of singing, I'm, oh, it would be that amazing Mongolian mouth music where they can sing like two different notes at once. That would be amazing. That's like next level singing. I think you've got a, a to-do list if uh, <laughs> a selection of quarantine. Yeah, yeah. There we go. I'm sure the, I'm sure the neighbours would love that. <laughs> oh, I think there's a comment just come up. Yeah. Play it, blow over the mouthpiece like a birthday candle. Okay. Well, when Top when it's safe to actually like use somebody else's flute again, I might have to give that a go. That sounds really cool. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so that brings me on to my next question is what are three bits of content, so maybe books, videos, games, um, mm-hmm. that you've lined up to enjoy uh, in the current times? Ooh, okay. I just finished playing Breath of the Wild and I'm feeling a distinct lack of gaming in my life. I might replay Dragon Age Inquisition, which if people haven't played it yet, might be the gayest video game that ever did gay. It's brilliant. Like while some of it is fighting monsters a lot of it is also just doing gay romance 
while saving the world. So that I think would be quite good. I might redo that. Um, it has everyone's fake gay boyfriend Dorian in it, which he, he's very good. He has a moustache. For the for the very uninitiated into gaming, what platform is this on? It's um well we we have a um, Steam we do a PC which we stream, but I think you can get it on Xbox, and it is an RPG game, so it's very much fantasy world. Got to save the universe with magic, um you know it's really over the top and it's really fun. So I highly recommend this to anybody. Um, and I'm currently um actually as part of Part of being in my lockdown, I'm I'm working on a fiction book for the first time uh, in a long time, and that's based on some historical data uh, around queer communities in Paris. Uh, and so I'm doing a lot of reading around that. So it's not so much like one book, but it's a whole stack of books. So I've started doing Queer History Monday on my Twitter feed, which is often people that I found. So like these amazing people who transitioned in sort of 1850 and then worked as successful musicians um, or spies or writers and, you know, lots of amazing queer love stories from 1900s or 1920s jazz age. So that's, that's amazing. And then movies. Oh, oh my God. Do I have to watch the tiger documentary that's been doing the rounds? So the whole coaches team had a go at me earlier. That's what various members of the team were doing over the weekend, and I have not gone near it (laughs) just yet. So I I think either you have to completely binge watch it or avoid it. I think that's the two two camps. Okay. I might avoid it then. And what would I watch instead? That's the real... Everyone keeps telling me that Portrait of a Lady on Fire is actually amazing. So mm. maybe I need to watch that, but I think I've I've sat through some really bad queer cinema in my life uh, because I've done quite a lot of film reviewing. Um, so I'm excited for it to be good, but I'm scared it will be bad. But everyone seems to really love it, so I think it's going to be good. So I think I should take the plunge and watch that. So I'm going to rewatch Dragon Age, keep reading historical books about historical queers doing awesome things, and watch a very classy film, which hopefully will be super romantic as well. Nice. So can I ask about the the novel you're writing at all, or is it too um, early to ask any questions about it? It's, all, it's a bit too early, I'm afraid. Um, so I'm officially working on my second book, uh, which was commissioned by an incredible publisher. I can't say a huge amount um, because until we can we can send people to go and pre-order it and it has a fancy cover and everything, I can't say too much. Um, so that's nonfiction. Um, so I'm working hard on that but then I'm also getting up early to to do my secret special fiction project which it could be awful in which case no one's ever going to see it but I will feel good for having written it so and if it's good enough people to read is that historical fiction did you say yes yes do you have a particular period in mind so far Mm, early 20th century very early 20th century yeah so we'll see as I said, I don't know, here's something which is, I've just been teaching all day, but a really important part of being a professional artist, whether that's sort of music or, or writing or visual art or theatre, is getting okay with making mistakes all the time. Um, there's this really weird idea that if you're doing it professionally, you never make mistakes, but you do. You just get really good at incorporating them into everyday life. 
So it feels really nice to give myself permission to write something just for me. And it's a really nice way of getting out of my head in this lockdown period. I can sit for two hours in the morning with a really huge homemade mocha, like a, a mug the size of my head, and dream about being in yeah, 1900s and make this amazing world and just escape to being there for a while. And maybe it won't be good enough, and that's okay. And if it is, you can read it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> If it is, this is the first place that anyone's heard of it. It's going to then be uh, the, the initial preliminary announcement that is cool. Um, I'm going to keep chatting, but I'm just going to invite anyone who's got any questions to also add them to the chat, which is open. If they've got anything else um, that they might want to ask, um, I think in the meantime, uh, I am going to ask. Um, what, uh, how can uh, listeners, viewers uh, follow you, find out more of your work, and what might be kind of the most accessible uh, to young people? Cool. Um, well, uh, you, can, you can be super old school and just go to my website, which is cnlester.com. Um, but I'm mostly on Twitter in terms of social media. I also on Facebook a little bit, and I'm really bad at Instagram. So... I have people following me and tagging me, but I have yet to put anything on there. So that's going to change. I promise it will change, but it might take a little while. <laughs> um, in terms of content, there are lots of essays um, that I've written for places um, like different art galleries or different newspapers and journals, uh, which you can find on my website, which are linked to. And the same thing for radio programs that I've done. Uh, you can find those on my website. Um, if you're a member of your library and you still might be able to join online, uh, a lot of libraries are still putting out ebooks. So you might be able to get my book as an ebook from your local library. Um, if you can afford it, it's I think like $3.99 on ebook from Amazon. Um, or again, I mean, I'd try the library first. And uh, all my music is available on Spotify for free. Um, which, if you like that, check it out. Um, obviously, if you just happen to be listening and be some kind of millionaire, please buy the album instead, because Spotify doesn't pay very much. But for people who don't, that the whole point is it to be there for people who can't afford to pay for it, in which case go, you know, enjoy. Um, I've got a few things on YouTube. And yeah, then on Twitter, I do a lot of work trying to share stuff from other queer and trans creators. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you might be able to find some other really cool people to read and follow and listen to and enjoy their artwork as well. Nice. Um, so we've had a question uh, from Katie. What was the most difficult part of writing your book, Trans Like Me? And do you have any advice for young people trying to write about their experiences or trying to become writers, professionally yeah. speaking? Absolutely. Um, so I think the hardest part for me for writing it was I was very scared of a backlash. Um, I have been written about in the press in some ways which are, you know, either just really hateful or hateful and outright lies. Um, and that's not easy. It's definitely not easy. But something which I have realized in that process is you know, I've, I've been super lucky to have supportive people in my life, but I think I've also worked quite hard to make sure um, that my publisher is very supportive, my agent is very supportive. So saying to any any trans writer looking to make it, make sure you've got people on your team and they know 
that things can be really transphobic out there, people can be really queerphobic, make sure your agent and your publisher have your back because it completely changes. So, you know, I did get attacked in the press with trans like me, not a huge amount, but some, some nasty hit pieces. And I didn't have to read them. My publisher read them and then sent me a message going, oh, don't worry about it. Like literally barely anyone's read it. Or in many cases, um, amazing publisher, Lenny Goodings at Virago, you know, she's had decades of death threats from people um, who don't believe in queer works and don't believe in feminist works. And so she just laughed. She was like, oh, the right people hate us. If those kind of people hate what you're doing, you've done a great job. Well done. And she was like, literally, well done. The assholes hate you. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it really changed because instead of feeling alone and attacked, suddenly, yeah, it, 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 it was not nice, but it couldn't touch me in the same way. Um, so I would really, really say to any person starting out as a writer, get your team behind you. And before you get an agent and before you get a publisher, make sure it's your friends. And if someone writes something shitty about you, you don't have to read it. There's no value. If someone is just going to be yelling and bullying you, you don't need to give them the time of day. Honestly, they can just drown in their own vitriol. You deserve better than that. And, you know, get friends to block them and just go and do something better with your time because you deserve so much better than that. Um, So, yeah, that was the thing I was most scared about. Um, And then in terms of the process of becoming a professional writer, there's there's quite a lot uh, going on there and a lot that goes into it. Um, So I'm trying to break it down into different stages. Um, In terms of writing either fiction or nonfiction, if you want to be a published author um, and particularly want to publish a book, you will need an agent. Uh, and to get an agent, you have to have a certain uh, level of writing that you've already done so that you can demonstrate that, you know, yes, you can write and that you're building an audience for your work uh, and that there's something, you know, there's something going on there that, you know, it's not just, oh, I want to write, but it's, oh, I can write. Um, and obviously you don't start from nothing and go straight to a book deal. Start just writing, write all the time, uh, write about anything, Um, if you feel you can't write, challenge yourself to write something awful. That's always a really fun thing to do. Like if I'm not feeling creative, I'm like, great, I'm going to write the worst thing anyone's ever read. Uh, And that's a really good practice. Uh, but don't beat yourself up if you're not feeling creative. Like it's not about being perfect. That's so not what it's like. Um, and then I started blogging. So I wrote a blog, which got like, I occasionally contribute to it now, um, but I don't really have time anymore. Um, but that was really, really helpful was that putting my name out there, writing things, again, nonfiction pieces, particularly about LGBTQI stuff. Um, from that, writing a blog, it would then be pitching to smaller like online magazines and, and doing an article here and an article there. Once that sort of built up, it was then pitching to newspapers. Um, I got my agent because Uh, She, in fact, had reviewed one of my albums and had been really struck by my songwriting ability. And she contacted someone who had interviewed me to ask if I had um, an agent, and I didn't at that point. So networking is really important, basically. Um, And to do that, you do have to get past that fear of, like, oh, am I just really bad? And the advice I would give is not, you know, this idea that maybe you could overcome that fear and you can't do anything until you overcome that fear. The thing I had to do was just go, okay, great, I feel that. Out there. 
So, you know, oh, I, I feel like a complete fraud or I feel I'm terrible. Guess I'm going to feel that while I go and submit things. Um, there's a thing about embracing rejections. So you will get maybe nine to 50 rejections for every acceptance that you get. And that's normal. So you're, you're not failing if you do that. You're absolutely on the right track. Um, so embrace failure, build your portfolio, um, build what it is that you want to write about. So your values as a writer, um, things that you will and will not write for. So I knew that I wasn't going to write for the Daily Mail, no matter what they offered or the sun. I don't think that that's not for me. I don't think they're very moral. And I didn't want to go there. Uh, and that actually made it really easy for me so that when they did approach me to write a piece, I didn't even have to think about it. It was just like, no, I'm not going there. And that gave me time to focus on things I cared about. Um, I have written a couple of things on my blog uh, which talk about the specific steps that go into becoming a published author and specific steps about what it's like working as a published author. Um, so if you just type in CN Lester blog, you should be able to find it, uh, or I can I can give it to Pip to send around. Um, and I guess the final piece of advice I would say is find some authors who are doing what you want to do, but like maybe five years ahead of you and then 10 years ahead of you and see what they did to get there. Um, so Roxane Gay is someone that I find really helpful looking at her career and thinking, okay, what does she do? Okay, what can I do to follow that kind of pattern? It's looking for inspiration um, and also because the arts often get talked about as quite mysterious careers, it's demystifying it. These are, these are careers with steps like any other career. Um, it can just be a bit sort of, yeah, it, people talk about lucky breaks all the time and there is no such thing as a lucky break. It's a thousand little breaks that you make and, and you just keep going up that ladder and then you slide down the ladder and you pick yourself up and you come back up the ladder again. Nice. Um, we had another comment um, that actually we've got a paperback copy of Trans Like Me, so it's going to be in our little Kite Trust library pretty soon. Oh, nice. Thank um, you so much. And, yeah, thank you for writing it and sharing it with us, Mr. Um, Common. So, yeah, no we've got copies that we can share with Kite Trust young people um, if they uh, can't find the e-book in the library or anything like that. Cool. Uh, cool. I think the other question um, that I've got is what would you so say like youth groups specifically for like trans and non-binary young people had existed when you were a teenager mm -hmm. um what kind of things do you think those spaces uh could do or provide that um might reach out and overcome those barriers because i think there's a lot of young people who still feel like oh i don't know whether that label applies to me do i want to go into that space um, the, the best ever, ever, ever bit of advice I've ever heard about this whole, like, does the label fit me and do I belong here, is that it's not about you fitting a word, it's about you finding words which are helpful for you. You do not have to be this perfect trans person, like this mythical, this person is officially trans with a capital T and, and they fit all these boxes and they tick all these boxes. It's just about what's finding what's useful. And it doesn't have to be useful forever. It just has to be useful long enough to help you. Um, because I don't I don't know anyone who didn't go a, go through a, am I trans enough or am I bi enough? Like, you know, I'm bi. And I went, oh, God, you know, all the disinformation that's out there, which is like, oh, you have to equally want men and women. You're like, is it equal? 
did I did I fancy her slightly more than him? Oh my god, maybe I'm going to be kicked out of the bi club. And you know, it, it's so easy for me to say now, like, oh no, it doesn't matter. Um, but people act like it really matters, and it's really hard because you always end up feeling like a fraud. Um, but you're not. It's just about what's useful. And you know, I officially grant you permission as an official trans with a capital T to like come and hang out in the trans like club. And just see if it's a nice club to be in it it makes you feel good and if it doesn't like thanks for joining us go on your way and be happy and if it does fit you hooray good for you doesn't matter if if you don't know whether you want to be in the club and you want to go in and out awesome it's all good i think one of the things i've seen like not super super recently but i think it was only like a couple of months ago my sense of time has gone out of the window lately. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um lots of uh people who i follow on twitter did I get, it's not a meme, but it's like, you know, a post that follows a formula about, mm. like, different years and different labels and mm. to kind of demystify that actually the majority of LGBTQ plus adults have mm. been through a variety of labels at, mm. like, different points in our lives. Yeah. Um, I found that quite a helpful thing to, to mm. help kind of, yeah, share that. Yeah. And, and like, that's totally cool. It's... It really makes me feel quite strange that this idea, yeah, you just have to like find the one true name. It's it's weird. I mean, I really like transgender. I think it's a nice big word. Um, but yeah, I oh, I really liked it. I went on holiday. Um, my partner is fluent in French, and and we go on to France in the summer quite a lot because we really love wild swimming and sort of mountaining and all those kind of outside things. And um, there was an older couple. We were staying at, at the, they, they had a, a sort of gîte in their garden. And um, the, the older sort of, uh, this, this wonderful older man was speaking to my partner and he asked in French, oh, is Cien a, a, a boy or a, or a girl or, or something else? And my partner went, oh, something else. Like thinking, oh my God, this is a, you know, wow. And um, Dominique, <laughs> said, oh, en androgyne, in this very, like, beautiful French accent. And he was like, oh, when I lived in Paris in the 60s, all of my friends were androgynes. And you're like, that's classy. I'm going to be that. That's a really classy term. So that's my current favorite. But I think it only works if you're in France and possibly only if you're just, like, a very, like, classy French person with a great accent who can pull it off. Mm. Yeah, I think that it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Because all of these words we have for identity are both language and culturally specific, mm, yeah. and I think that it it really highlights, doesn't it, that it isn't about there is this definitive category and this is a thing. It's mm. just how we, and especially over time as well, how we use language to describe experience. Absolutely, and it's about finding the right language that kind of fits a way to just articulate and speak about our experiences. Exactly. And, you know, one nice thing about getting older is you can really see how words go in and out of fashion, like really quickly. You know, I still love genderqueer. I think it's a great term and I, I use it a lot about myself. Um, but, you know, that's gone out of favor. But I think it's kind of coming back in again a little bit. Um, mm. And then fuck as a term was quite popular sort of in the early 2000s or the mid 2000s but I never felt cool enough for that that seemed to be people who had like a really like out there fashion attitude and I was like oh I'm a bit of a nerd though <laughs> I don't yeah. know 
find my like. So you know, I'm sure there's always this kind of like, oh, can I? Can I? Can I? But honestly, if it if it makes you feel right in yourself, or like again, helpful, I think is a really good term. Is it helpful? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I think my last thing to ask is, do you have any? final thoughts or messages that you'd like to leave us with oh oh i don't know that's such a big open-ended question um i think it would be when we're in this really strange time it's so hard because i mean i'm a planner i plan everything and i i have you know big to-do lists and i i plan out my career in advance and i plan out all kinds of things Um, But something I've learned in very difficult parts of my life is about trying to live one day at a time, which again is not about trying to be perfect living one day at a time. Because then I get all like, oh, but I can't do that. I'm really bad at that. Oh, no. Like, I'm sure some people can do it really well, but I can't do it really well. Um, So I'm not saying do that because, you know, or if you do that, just know that a lot of, you know, I'm doing that too and feeling panicked about it. But it is in, in these moments where life really does close down, um, I think finding the, the joys where you can find them. It's being really greedy for joy and delight and even just things which are a little bit nice. Um, so I, I get really greedy about like having my coffee and, and you know, the sun right now as we're recording this, the sun is setting. So I'm going to watch the sunset and I'm going to connect with a friend tonight we have a queer book club and we watch really uh we we read really bad books together but we're going to make each other laugh so i'm going to hold on to that and myself little things to do every day that i know that i can do um not because i again have to be like oh i'm in lockdown now i'm a productivity genius but it makes me feel good to do them it's being really selfish about that actually like i feel good doing my french practice i'm not doing it to be hyper productive i'm doing it because it helps me I'm going to have my coffee. I'm going to have a bubble bath. I'm just going to do, having previously dismissed bubble baths, not dismissed them, they're very important. Um, and not trying not to then build, you know, it, it's just every single day finding those moments of delight and finding those moments of doing something that, that helps bring you out of yourself and feel like you're, for want of a better word, like contributing to who you are. Um, and if the world has slowed down right now, maybe that's a really nice time to read a lot, listen to podcasts, really immerse yourself in all these different possibilities for who you can be and how you can be, um, and not worry about having to have answers or come up with anything on the spot, but just be, which, you know, it can be easier said than done, but actually I think we can do it. We just have to keep picking ourselves up and trying. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Not a problem. 